Hope you're having a good, cool morning. We were just talking about how it hasn't been this cold this early, probably in a couple of years, so getting acclimated to it. It's supposed to be 10 degrees, I think, next Saturday night, so <laughs> bundle up. Well, let's go ahead and seek the Lord and jump right into the Word this morning. Father, we thank you for another day that you blessed us with. We thank you that we can gather together, worship you, Lord, praise your holy name. We thank you, Father, for your word, which is a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. Lord, may you guide us into all righteousness for your name's sake today. May you speak to us through your word. May you empower us to live for you, to do your will, Lord, to glorify you, to shine as bright lights in the darkness all around us. Lord, remove any distractions, any hindrances, anything that would get in the way of us seeing you and loving you and loving your word. So please be with us today, Lord. We need you and we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of today's teaching is Bearing the Fruit of Love. Bearing the Fruit of Love. Now the word love seems to be thrown around in our day, um, pretty much it's almost lost its meaning because we say it so often. I love peanut butter and I love golf and I love basketball and I love football and I love the snow and I love Idaho and I love when it's really cold. And hope, I don't know. But pretty much in our culture, it seems that you can define love any way you want it to. You hear people say you can love whatever you want, whoever you want, however you want. And we're told it's good and it's healthy and it should be celebrated. And we're told love is love. Maybe you've heard that phrase, love is love. According to UrbanDictionary.com, the phrase love is love means that the love expressed by an individual or couple is valid regardless of the sexual orientation or gender identity of their lover or partner. And so pretty much who knows where that line is. It's so blurred in our day and age that pretty much you can define love however you want. So much confusion. The question is who gets to define love? The creature or the creation? The uncreated creator, God Almighty, or us feeble Creatures who have feelings and emotions and can be swayed in so many different ways because of our sinful flesh. And of course, the answer is God. He gets to define what love is. And the Bible actually says, God is love. 1 John 4.8, 1 John 4.16. And just because someone says, I love this or that, doesn't mean it's good. It doesn't mean it's healthy. It doesn't mean it's right. I can say I love the smell of gasoline and just breathe it in it all the time. That doesn't mean it's good that I like that smell. I really like that. Or the smell of smoke or cigarettes. You can say I love smoking cigarettes. Does that make it good and healthy and right? And so that's what we're told though in our day and age. I love this person or that person or this many people in this way romantically and you can't tell me otherwise. But the scripture tells us what love is. The self-sacrificial, self-giving love of God. The agape love of God. That's what I want to talk about 
today. It's at the heart of the Christian message, the Christian gospel, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Out of God's love for us, he sent his son into the world. And I can't stop talking about this love. Psalm 89.1, it's such an amazing love. Listen to what the psalmist says. I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. Maybe you've heard that song. I will sing of your love forever. And I thought they made up that line. And I was searching, where do they get this from? Psalm 89.1, I will sing of your love forever. So if the psalmist is going to sing about God's love forever, all the time here on earth and in heaven, we should be talking about God's love more often. King David put it this way, Psalm 63, 3, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. Psalm 57, 10, your loving kindness is great to the heavens, your truth to the clouds. It's described as a great love in scripture. In Psalm 103, 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. Psalm 108, 4, your loving kindness is great above the heavens and your truth reaches to the sky. It's an everlasting love. Psalm 100, verse 5, for the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. In Psalm 136, 26 times the psalmist couldn't help himself. He repeats the phrase, his loving kindness is everlasting. All 26 verses. His loving kindness is everlasting. His loving kindness is everlasting. And in Psalm 118, verses 1 through 4, same thing. Four times he repeats, his loving kindness is everlasting. In Jeremiah 31, 3, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. It's a selfless love. 1 John 3, 16, we know love by this that he laid down his life for us, and so we ought to or we must lay down our lives for each other. How do we know what love is? Apart from God, his love for us, him sending his son for us and showing us what self-sacrificial love looks like. It's an undeserving love, Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We don't deserve his love, yet he died for us anyways, and he offers salvation to everyone. And so in Matthew 5, Jesus now commands us, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's how it's a different kind of love. Because Jesus said the world can love their own, the tax collectors, the publicans, they even love their own, right? But you as Christians are to love your enemies. Those who don't deserve your love, you are to love them and lay down your lives for them even, just as I laid down my life for you. As the scripture says, do good to all men, but especially the household of faith. We're commanded to lay down our life, lives for each other and the world, but how much more should we love one another? Ephesians 3, 14 through 19, this amazing prayer of the apostle Paul you can turn there if you'd like, five verses or so. It's a love described in scripture that surpasses knowledge. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory 
to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. God wants us to know the love of Christ and yet it surpasses knowledge. Know the unknowable. Search for the unsearchable. Comprehend the incomprehensible. That's our job as believers. We can never fully grasp his love yet as far as we can, as much as we can, the height, the breadth, the depth, the length, all these different ways to describe how awesome, how glorious his love is for us. We are to search it out. We are to know it in this life through God's word. And I think it's been said that the gospel message and God's word is simple enough for you know, a child to understand, but theologians for years and years can spend 80 years of their life just at the base of the mountain peak of God's gospel, of his word, of his glory, and of his love. God wants us, he wants his church to be rooted and grounded in love. It's a plant illustration that we'll talk about a little bit more later, but he wants the roots from underneath and the foundation, the grounding of our faith to be love. And from that should spring forth all that we do. And it the scripture puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 16, 14. Let all that you do be done in love. That's pretty much everything, right? All. Let all that you do be done in love. Easy to say, hard to apply. And he says that after writing to the Corinthian church, telling them for 16 chapters how they are not loving, how they are doing things wrong, and we should learn from their mistakes. How many problems could be solved in our lives if we did everything in love? How many problems in our relationships, in our family life, in our marriages, in our kids' lives, in our relationships with people in this world, and so on and so forth, could be solved if everything we did was in love? We're called to pursue this love, 1 Corinthians 14.1. We're called to comprehend it, as I just read in Ephesians 3.18, or at least try to. We're called to know it, Ephesians 3.19. We're called to see it, 1 John 3.1. See how great the love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. We're called to remain or abide in it. John 15, 9. We're called to be controlled by this love. 2 Corinthians 5, 14. We're called to walk in this love. Ephesians 5, 2. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. We're called to put on this love or clothe ourselves in this love. Colossians 3, 14. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Lord willing, in the next several weeks, I want to spend some time inspecting our fruit. How does the fruit look in our life? Some of you guys have gardens. Some of your fruit probably is no longer there this time of year. I can't imagine. I'm not a gardener, but I don't know if your vegetables or fruit can thrive in this weather. 
And even the word says, in the end times, the love of many will grow cold. So we need to watch that in our lives, that our love doesn't grow cold, that we stay on fire for the Lord, that we continue to bear much fruit. And what is the first fruit listed in Galatians chapter 5? Love. And that's what we're talking about today. We're told by Jesus that every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. Have you ever bitten, bitten into a bad apple? It looks lush on the outside. It looks good. You're ready to enjoy it. And then it's mush inside. It crumbles. Maybe there's a nice worm in there waiting for you. Have you ever experienced something like that? Maybe it wasn't an apple, but another piece of fruit that you were excited to enjoy and then come, have come to realize that it wasn't what you thought it was? That happened to me recently, and I wanted to grab that apple and just see how far I could throw it in the field behind my house. <laughs> but I didn't. I had self-control, another fruit of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> but, you know, the scripture talks about how we can do a lot of things outwardly that appear as being good fruit, but really it's not. If you'll look at 1 Corinthians 13 with me, Paul lays out some amazing things that he could even do in the Christian faith and yet not have love. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries, and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. That's quite a list there. Faith to, to move mountains, all mysteries, all knowledge, giving my body to be burned, giving my possessions away to feed the poor, the tongues of men and of angels. I can have all these things and still be lacking love, which he goes on to say is the greatest of all three. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. The scripture puts a pretty important point on describing love in the Christian walk, in God's love for us and our love for him, and Paul goes on to describe what love is. Do we want a definition of love? 1 Corinthians 13, 4, and following is a good place to start. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. does not brag. It's not arrogant does not act unbecomingly, as it says in my translation, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. So the question is, how is our patience? How is our kindness? Is there jealousy in our lives? Bragging, arrogance. Are we rude, selfish, irritable, resentful? Those are different words to describe what Paul lays out here because I didn't know what unbecomingly, unbecomingly necessarily meant. Rude, selfish, irritable, resentful. Sometimes we can show these attributes in our life and excuse them. I just had a long day, right? Work was really stressful. I didn't sleep last night very well. 
this, that, or the other, and so I'm very irritable. I'm very resentful. I'm, I'm very easily triggered. And I can notice some of these things in my life, and I'm convicted as I was putting this message together. I'm not loving the people around me as I should. And perhaps when you look through this list, there can be some areas in your love and your walk with the Lord and the fruit that you're bearing to where hopefully you can grow as well. That's our goal as Christians. God doesn't want us to remain stagnant. He wants us to grow in our love for him and our love for one another. So much so it's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. We love ourselves, right? We get up in the morning. I think Pastor Joe says your idol could be the person you're looking at in the mirror, right? The beard you're shaving, so to speak. When you look that, I mean, we give such care and attention to ourselves, but how about the people around us? God wants us to have this kind of self, selfless, self-giving love. First Timothy 1.5 says, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. The goal of what we do in the church, the teaching that we do, is so that we will have love from pure heart. Pretty important. So when we look to God in Christ and his love, that should shape our love in relation to him and our families and our friends and in the world around us. John 13, 35, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He could have said by your faith. He could have said by your good works. He could have said a lot of things there. They will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. So if someone steps in this church as we're having a church service, will they see something different about us? If someone steps into your house for more than five minutes, maybe a couple hours, maybe they spend a couple days, do they see something different about you and your love for God and for the people around you? And if they don't, something's wrong. And if you go to my work and you interview all the people there that know me now after a couple months, my bosses and the other teacher interns and the teachers, and if they don't say something's different about Nick, something's wrong. I'm in trouble. Hopefully they would say something to that effect. And by God's grace, or I think I've mentioned it before, one of the teachers came up to me and said, are you religious? Because I noticed something different about you. And I was like, praise God, at least one person, you know, it's not like I'm trying to get brownie points with them. I'm just trying to live the Christian life and failing miserably at times compared to the standard that God lays out for us in his word. But nonetheless, she noticed that and I was able to share with her about the church and different things. And then the conversation just stopped. And I later found out it's, I think she's Mormon, so she didn't want to talk about it, but That's okay. Maybe it'll open the door for a conversation later. But what if you came to my house and you questioned my kids and you questioned my wife? Is Nick patient? Is he kind? Is he gentle? How's he doing in this list here in 1 Corinthians 13? And don't go do it because I don't, I'm a little scared of the answer. I have a lot of growth to do in my walk with the Lord and perhaps some of you as well. But it's a standard that God wants us to strain for, to attain. And he tells us to pursue love or to pursue it or to grow in it or to long for it. 
and God shows us his love in Christ. And that's the self-sacrificial love that he wants us to have for others. Not just when it's easy, not just when our spouse or friend or people that we know are nice to us and give us gifts or whatever it is, when it's hard, when they don't love us, even when they're our enemies. Love your enemies. So if we can love the way God calls us to, then everything else in our Christian walks will come together, I believe. And that's why Paul lists it first. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If you're full of love, do you think you're not going to be a joyful person? If you're full of love, are you going to be fearful all the time, which we talked about before? No, you're going to be full of peace. If you're full of love, you're going to have self-control. So if we can master this, everything else will fall into place. Easier said than done. So, may the Lord help us to grow in these things. John 15, 8. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. See, for me, when I've been at work lately, I, what I'm thinking throughout the day is how can people that don't have the Holy Spirit in them, they're not Christians, they don't know the love of Christ, shouldn't there be this huge difference between my life, my walk, the fruit I am bearing, and them? And it's just really convicted me lately that if they're not in the faith, they're not in the Lord, they're in the flesh, something should be different in my life, my family's life, in my church's life, than the world around us. Matthew 3.10 says, And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. This is what John the Baptist is preaching to the Pharisees and religious leaders. He says, Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is being cut down and thrown into the fire. He just said it how it was, right? And they didn't like that. And the rest is history. We know how that ended for John the Baptist. But nonetheless, he preached the truth. If you'll turn with me to Galatians 5, 13 through 25, how do we bear good fruit? How do we bear love in our lives? Galatians 5, 13. For you are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit, 
Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. A key point to this passage is you can't bear fruit. I can't bear fruit. We can't live with the love of God in and through us if it's apart from the Holy Spirit. And it comes from a place of freedom, as we saw in verse 13. You were called to freedom, brethren. We've been, we've been set free. Set free from the law. Set free from the bondage of sin and Satan and his power in our lives. And because we are free, Paul is pleading with the Galatian church, walk in the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. And what does that mean? It means to yield yourself to the Holy Spirit. To allow yourself to be controlled by him. To be guided by him. And if we're allowing junk in our lives, whether that's through technology, media, songs, whatever it is, that can pollute us. And the Holy Spirit, as the scripture says, can be grieved. Where Paul says elsewhere, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So we need to be careful. We need to be wise, the Bible says, how you walk. Not as unwise children, but as wise children, making the most of your time for the days are evil. I once had a Christian friend that said it doesn't matter what you listen to or what you watch because Jesus said out of the heart that's what defiles a man so it actually comes from within and therefore it doesn't matter what you're listening to or what you're watching and you can just watch whatever listen to whatever and you're good and of course that's not what the scripture is saying we can grieve the Holy Spirit of God by what we watch, what we listen to. So we need to be sensitive to these things. And so this is what Paul is pleading for in this Galatian church. He even says at one point, who has bewitched you? Who has ca cast a spell on you guys? Because when I first came to you, he says, I was doing amazing miracles. How? Through the works of the law or through faith? You guys believed in faith. The Holy Spirit came, was poured out in your lives. Miracles were done. You were running well. You believed in Jesus and what he did for you on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. You believed in that gospel, and now you've drifted. You want to now work your way to salvation. You want to now go back to the law. You want to be circumcised to be saved and keep all these commandments of the Old Testament. And he has some very strong language for this church. He goes on to say in Galatians 4.11, I fear for you. Galatians 4.20, I'm perplexed about you. He says in Galatians 4.9, how is it that you turn back again to weak and worthless and elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? And then he says in Galatians 5.4, you have been severed from Christ. You've been cut off. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. He's pleading with them that the law can't save. You can't save yourself. You can't work your way to heaven. Aren't you thankful that it's all by grace through faith? I mean, it's so simplistic. As I was reading through the book of Galatians, as I was putting these notes together, and how he just keeps saying over and over, it's by faith in Jesus. It's by faith. You're justified by faith. You're saved by faith. 
and yet you want to keep all these, he goes, I'm sorrowful for you that you're keeping all these days and observing all these different things, trying to earn your way. He goes, I'm so confused. It's all by grace through faith. And so he says in Galatians 4.12, I beg of you, brethren, become as I am. I love what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. You guys might know the verse. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life and the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He says, become as I am. I'm not living my own life anymore. Christ is living in me. This same Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. This love that Paul can't express, the height and depth and length and breadth and width and all these different words he's using. Submit to this Christ. Have faith in this Jesus. Live the life that I'm living. I beg you, become as I am. I, re- I recently read a book about a battle in World War II on the Philippine Islands, 1943. I guess it's fitting this week as we celebrate it, celebrated Veterans Day. I was looking through this book that talked about some of these trials and tribulations and difficulties that the soldiers went through on the Philippine Islands during World War II. Ultimately, the Japanese forces overwhelmed the U.S. forces and they had to surrender. Lieutenant General Jonathan Wainwright ordered the U.S. armies and also the Filipino armies as well I guess they were following suit with America. They all surrendered. 76,000 soldiers surrendered. It's a pretty big number. It was 64,000 Filipino soldiers, 12,000 U.S. soldiers surrendered. I don't think I remember reading this story in school. What ensued after they surrendered, some didn't surrender, by the way. They ran to the hills. Some became guerrilla, part of the guerrilla warfare movement. And some died off trying to live for themselves in the hills, in the hills with no food and, and covering and those things. But what ensued next after they surrendered later became known as the Bataan Death March. The Japanese had them march 66 miles. 66 miles, many of them couldn't make it. They died on the way. Over 500 to 1,000 They say U.S. soldiers died and several thousand of the Filipino soldiers died just in this march alone. Those who made it to the prison of war camps, who were thankful enough to finally make it there, were given rations of a little bowl of porridge with worms in it and enough contaminated water to make it to the next day. And in the prisoner of war camps, the person that wrote this book was saying thousands of us were dying every day. Or thousands of us within the first couple weeks were dying, and the Japanese didn't care. And so he was determined, this U.S. Marine, to get a hold of other Marines and other Army personnel to escape. And so that's what the story is about. They spent all this time trying to get out of these prison of war camps to gain their freedom. And I enjoy reading these stories because the analogy or the illustration to the Christian walk, I just find so many similarities to it. But the awesome part of this story was the, the man who wrote the book was able to gain freedom. 
after much planning, much preparation, weeks and weeks, if not months of preparation to get all the things ready and packaged and he needed medical supplies and food. And once they did get out, they were in a jungle for several days, just trudging their way through with leeches on them and mosquitoes that carried malaria, alligators in the swamp that they ran into, enemy fire. And yet they made it out. They were able, after much trial, many trials, they were able to make it home. And it was a pretty awesome story. I say all that because it reminded me of what we just read in Galatians. Can you imagine if these soldiers said, after they went back home to their families, after they gained freedom, after they fought for their lives to attain this freedom that they once had and were longing for, and then said, you know what, we're going to go back. Let's go turn ourselves in again. Let's go back to these prisoner of war camps and go submit to the Japanese. I mean, it's preposterous, right, to even think of that. And that's what Paul is saying to the Galatian church. And that's what he's saying to anyone. And even the writer to the Hebrews is saying something similar. Why would you go back to the law? Why would you go back to the bondage, the enslavement, and the death that is produced by that? Instead of the freedom that you have in Jesus Christ. And Paul puts it this way in Galatians 5.1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. Do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. So it's not like we're just free and there's no chance of us being subject again. And he goes on to tell them, you've been severed from Christ. We need to be careful how we walk in the Lord. And so verses 13 and 14 talk about the freedom that we have in Christ in Galatians 5. And this freedom leads us to love one another. But through love, he says, serve one another. And then in verse 14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's saying, you really want to fulfill the law? Let me show you how. Love. It's that simple. Some people don't want the simple answer. It's got to be harder than that, right? Christianity has got to be harder than just saying, Jesus, I believe in everything that you did for me. I love you. I have faith in you. I'm saved. And now I'm going to go love my brothers and sisters in the Lord. People come, make the gospel message so complicated. Paul didn't understand it, and I don't either. I think a good illustration also of the Christian walk with the Lord is Nehemiah. You guys heard of Nehemiah in the Old Testament? I love the example of him having a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. He was commissioned by the king to go rebuild the wall. The, the wall was torn down in Jerusalem. The church or the temple was torn down. 589 roughly through 537 BC, the Babylonians went in. King Nebuchadnezzar went in. He ransacked the temple. He burned it down. He tore down the wall. He carried many of the Jewish people into slavery in Babylonia. And Nehemiah now, when you read the book of Nehemiah, he's pleading with the Lord. Ezra goes back and he helps rebuild the temple. Nehemiah, it's on his heart to rebuild the wall. And so the king, the king grants him this freedom. Yep, go, go rebuild the wall. And so Nehemiah goes back. He has the letters signed by the king. He goes back to rebuild the wall. And as he's doing it, Sanballat and Tobiah and others say, you're not allowed to be doing that. Get down from that wall. Come down here. And what is Nehemiah's response? We're going to obey our Lord and God. 
I have the freedom, so to speak, to rebuild this wall, and I'm going to keep doing this. And he told all the men around him, get a trial in one hand and a sword in another. Okay? Fight off the enemy and keep rebuilding. And that's us as Christians. Fight off the enemy, keep building each other up in love. Keep growing in love. Or as Paul says in Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. That's part of walking in the spirit. The flesh is always there, right? So part of walking in the spirit, yielding to the spirit, is carrying that trial in one hand and saying, flesh, you're no longer master over me. You're not my Lord. I'm not enslaved to you anymore. And you carry that sword and you never put it down your entire life. So, if you'll turn with me to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Where did Paul get this imagery of fruit? The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, and so forth. I believe the answer is found in John chapter 15. I want to look at four ways to bear the fruit of love from John 15. Let's just go ahead and start at verse 1. I'm the vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves. For the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. And whatever you ask of the father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. He seems to be repeating certain themes throughout this teaching to his disciples. John 13 through 17 is known as the Last Supper as Jesus in chapter 17 makes his way to the Garden of Gethsemane and we see his high priestly prayer. These are the last things he's teaching his disciples before he goes to the cross. 
He knows he's not going to be with them much longer. He wants to encourage them. He wants to strengthen their faith. He wants, it's like parting words that he's giving them. These are some of the most important things, disciples, that I have for you as I'm leaving this world and going back to my father. And what are these important things that he leaves with them? That they love one another. That they bear much fruit. That they realize that they can't do it alone. That they realize apart from him, they can do nothing. That he's the vine, they are the branches. Abide. 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 And that's point number one. Remain in Jesus. That's what the word abide means. Menno. Stay. Continue in. Continue in his love. He says this in verse 4. Verse 5. 6, 7, 9, and 10. Abide in me and abide in my love. Remain in my love. Egypt is always there calling us back home, so to speak. Remember those leeks and onions as the scripture talks about? Your past life will be whispering in your ear as long as you live. Satan will be throwing darts your way just like he did with Jesus. If you're really the son of God, Turn these stones into bread. We need to know the word of God to be able to respond back. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus remained in his father's love. Jesus remained in his father's word, and he was able to fight off the enemy. And Jesus said, just as I remained in my father and his word and his love, remain in my love. Remain in me, and you'll bear much fruit for the kingdom. Point number two, remember that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. John 15, five, I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And we say, we know that, right? We've heard this before, but are we doing it? Are we realizing it? Are we clinging to him as desperately as we need to, to live our Christian lives and to walk in love? Have you ever seen a branch just hanging out by itself outside? I said that to, <laughs> it's meant to be kind of silly, but dad jokes or whatever. But in Mexico, when I was teaching down there, I said that. Have you ever just gone outside and seen a branch? You never see a branch just by itself. It's always connected to the vine, right? And that's what Jesus is telling his disciples. You can't do anything apart from me. Cling to me. Remain in me and you'll bear much fruit. The other day, the power went out at my house, maybe some of your houses too, if you live in Star. 6 a.m., I'm working out in the garage. All of a sudden, the lights start to flicker. I'm like, that's kind of weird. And then pretty much pitch black. And so my phone was somewhere, and my garage still hasn't been cleaned out yet since I've moved. And so there's stuff pretty much everywhere in the garage. And so somehow I had to make it inside, and I'm thinking, oh, I'll turn on the light when I get inside. Oh, no, I can't turn on a light. The power's out. And so I'm trying to plan my morning now, getting ready for work, with no power, which we're just really spoiled here in America, right? And so I'm like, okay, I need to iron my shirt. Oh, yeah, I don't have power. I can't do that. Okay, it's starting to get cold now. It's like 30 degrees outside. I'm going to go turn on the heater. Oh, that's hooked up to the electricity and the power. Okay, can't do that. And then I started to think of all these things that I couldn't do and how much I desperately need those things to get ready for work. And it was just a reminder that 
sometimes in our Christian walk, maybe God allows us to do things in our own strength to realize just how foolish we are without him. Just to realize how much we really need him. Kind of like Peter. Okay, Peter, you think that you can do this in your own strength? Okay, go right ahead. I'll be waiting for you when you return and I'll restore you. And I just think we really need to cling to the Lord, realizing how much we need him. Point number three, resolve to ask. So I'm keeping these with the R. Remember or remain in Jesus. Remember apart from him, we can do nothing. Resolve to ask. John 15, seven. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. It's one of my prayers almost every day. Lord, help me to love my wife as you call me to, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Lord, help me to love my kids and raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Lord, help me to love the kids at my work that are very hard to love sometimes. Help me to love the people at my job. Give me an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Help me to not be fearful, Lord. Help me to overcome that fear and share your love with them. Lord, help me to love your church the way that you've called me to. Give me wisdom, Lord. Give me guidance. I want them to be edified, to be built up, to love one another, to love you. Help me, Lord, to do that. And the Bible says, ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door will be open. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, find. He who knocks, it shall be open. So we need to keep knocking, keep pleading, keep asking. Lord, I'm going to keep begging for these things until I grow in the love for my spouse and my kids and the people around me. I'm going to keep pleading, and I'm asking you guys to do the same thing as well. The church in Thessalonica, Paul writes to them in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, and 10, and he says, brethren, you don't need anyone to write to you about the love of God and the love of the brethren. He says, you're already taught by God. You're doing really well. And then he goes on to say, nevertheless, excel still the more. You're doing good for the most part. There's still growth. You still need to abound in it. So excel still the more. We need to ask for his help. And point number four, realize that your greatest friend gave his life for you. John 15, 13, and 15, 14. Greater love has no man than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Isn't that amazing? That we are a friend of Almighty God, that the Son of God left his throne in heaven to come down to die for us rebel sinners. And the scripture says, for one will hardly die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. When I was teaching classes as a chaplain at the Ventura County Rescue Mission with people that were coming off the streets and out of jail and some of them in jail for 20 years, I said, would you guys die for anyone in this room? Would you die for one of your buddies here? Would you die for someone in your gang? Some of them. I would die for my brother, chaplain. I would die for my mom. How about your enemy? How about the rival gang member? Would you die for him? That gets their attention. Jesus died for you even while you, you were yet a sinner. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's an amazing love. Behold, see 
What great love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called his children. So if you ever deviate from this love, look at the cross. You want to know what love is? Look at what Jesus did for you and I and for the whole world. It's the greatest definition of love. There's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. His name is Jesus. Remain in his love and you'll bear much fruit. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. We thank you that we can be cleansed. We thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit who comforts us, who guides us, who intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and who allows us to bear much fruit for your kingdom. Lord, help us to grow in our love for you and our love for one another and love for the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.